Hey, welcome back to the Claim the Stage podcast. I'm Angela Lucier. I am your host. I'm also a speaker, author, and trainer. And you might have noticed I didn't post a new episode last week. It was my first week off from the podcast since we started back in June. I decided to take a spring break and uh, hope you didn't miss me too much. I know sometimes when you look forward to something and it doesn't happen, you wonder like, oh man, what am I going to do with that hour when I get so inspired? So I hope you found something else to do. It actually reminded me of when I used to watch Desperate Housewives on Sunday nights and I would look forward to it during the weekend because <laughs> I was that much of a nerd. <laughs> And then when nine o'clock would roll around on Sunday night and they would play a rerun, I'd be like, what? Why is there not a new episode of Desperate Housewives tonight? (laughs) I would get so bummed out. (laughs) So I hope you didn't feel that way finding out that there was no episode last week. But I did use the time constructively, booked a whole bunch of speaking gigs, did a bunch of speaking gigs, had a great time going to Boston and partnering with Innovation Women, which is a really cool online speakers bureau. If you haven't checked them out yet, you definitely should. They help entrepreneurial, innovative, technical women to get on more panels and get more speaking gigs. So it was really fun to be a featured expert on their panel about how to get how to get gigs. And uh, so, yeah, I was kind of all over the place last week and I'm back this week with a great interview with Lara Hogan, who has a new book that came out yesterday. This is like brand new news in the world of public speaking. We're going to talk all about her book, Demystifying Public Speaking, in today's interview. But before we jump into that, I wanted to share two quick announcements. Number one, (laughs) I'm looking for questions from you that you would like me to feature on this podcast. So if you're not on my newsletter list, you should definitely get on there because I talked about this in last week's newsletter. I asked for your questions. What keeps you up at night? What are you thinking about along the lines of public speaking that you haven't been able to figure out? What what's uh what's on your mind? I've received some great questions so far, and I'm excited to feature them in an upcoming episode in a couple of weeks. But I am still collecting submissions, so please email me anything that you know from dress code to getting over the fear to how to put together a story, you know anything anything on your mind. You can email me at angela at angelalucier.us with those questions. Second quick thing. A couple of weeks ago, episode 21, it was called Are You Up for an Adventure? And I talked about my 75-mile hike. And during that uh, podcast, I asked you to challenge yourself to do something you think you can't do. I'm wondering who took me up on that challenge because I want to feature you on an episode coming up in December. So if you haven't listened to that episode yet, please go back and and listen to it and, and hear the challenge and think about it because it's always... Okay, it's it's never going to be the right time to do something really difficult, but I'm hoping that when you hear my story and you hear what I learned from it, you'll say, you know what, I think it's time to try that thing I've been avoiding. And then I want you to tell me about it and then I'll share it on my podcast. So I think inspiring stories really help to get people motivated and help to make us feel like we're not alone and we're all kind of in this together. So that's it for me. I hope you enjoyed today's interview. Without further ado, here it is. On today's show, I'd like to welcome Lara Hogan. Lara is an engineering director at Etsy and the author of Designing for Performance, Building a Device Lab, 
and demystifying public speaking. She champions performance as a part of the overall user experience, helps people get comfortable giving presentations, and believes it's important to celebrate career achievements with donuts. Laura, <laughs> welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> Did you have a donut today? Not yet. I don't know what I've, what I've, I've been doing this morning. <laughs> <laughs> I think you should have one right after our interview. I absolutely will. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a favorite kind of donut? Oh, that's the hardest question. So I'm like a um, like an old school diner donut person. I mean, hipster donuts are cool too, but I will always go for like an old fashioned. Hmm. Like the the powdered donut, or what's what's an old fashioned? Is that just like it's, no yeah, sugar on like, it? Yeah, exactly. It's just like straight up some fried dough. Oh, it's so it's so good. What do you have a favorite donut? I love Boston cream. Oh yeah, that's a good choice. Yeah, I know. Every year, like you see the donuts with like bacon and maple syrup and all this crazy stuff. And I'm like, I just want that old like '80s donut. Yeah, yeah, straight up. I mean, so we get donuts delivered at work sometimes, and they're always like cool, hip, new donut. Because you know, I live in in New York. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's plenty of like donut competitions, and I'm like, man, just give me a straight up yeah old fashioned donut. <laughs> So, Laura, I have so much to talk to you about today, especially your new book, Demystifying Public Speaking. And before we get into this, I want to learn more about your background because you are an engineering director and you work on that technical side. So for someone who has that, the computer and, you know, the left brain stuff going on, I wonder how you got into public speaking and becoming an authority on the subject. Uh, that's a really interesting question. I've been thinking a lot about how to like succinctly describe this. And there's like no, I feel like in so many of our, our careers these days, there's like no clear narrative as to how you get to where you are anymore. <laughs> so true. Um, <laughs> so I studied philosophy in undergrad and that helped me create problem statements, uh, develop supporting arguments, kind of, you know, think through how to more clearly articulate what it was that I was trying to say. And I think that that helped me throughout the rest of my career, whether it was, uh, you know, being a manager or doing something technical just because communication is key in, in all these careers. And I think that for me, public speaking probably came out of seeing my mom, who's a Methodist minister, get up and talk every Sunday, effectively mm-hmm. giving like a speech every Sunday with a sermon. So it just felt natural to try it out myself. Yeah, and I think you're you're also sort of a poster child for not just doing speaking because it's your job as a communications professional or a marketing person. Everybody needs to communicate in every job. So the more training and the more time you put into trying to build those skills, the better you are, no matter what you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. I think that for me, talking, giving talks about the technical stuff was helpful for me to formulate better ideas around this, whether it was you know, hearing the kinds of questions I would get during Q&A that would help advance my thinking or just trying to figure out how to show people new technical skill sets. It's really hard to communicate sometimes because code is not that interesting to look at all the time. So it's helpful when you can talk about it or reason about it or try to share why, you know, X, Y, and Z is the best practice. Mm-hmm. How did you get into public speaking? So I was uh, I was invited to give a talk at a conference, um, kind of out of the blue. I got an email from someone uh, inviting me to come speak about performance, web performance, so how to make websites fast. And I was excited about it. I didn't know much about the conference. I had never really you know, written a talk before. And, and I put a lot of effort into it. And a few days uh, before the conference, I took a look at the website and realized, oh, no, they, um, they had invited me to do a keynote, like the opening talk for the day. And I hadn't I had written a very technical talk, kind of assuming people would choose to come to the talk, you know, based on the, the other kinds of tracks that they could go visit. And so I quickly had to scramble to rewrite it to be for a more general audience. Um, I got to the conference. Uh, I was standing next to the stage. We were getting all set up. And as they were introducing me, 
I realized that the bio that they were reading was not my bio. And uh, at first I was like, okay, maybe they just like, you know, scrape somebody else's website. And then I realized, no, they had like legit invited the wrong person. <laughs> they oh they definitely thought I was someone else. <laughs> oh my God. Uh, so yeah, so that's how I got into public speaking. It was like a, a crowd of like 400 people. And I gave this like pretty horrific talk uh, that was not, yeah, it was not very, I mean, like I remember vividly standing on stage during Q and A and uh, a man asked a question about animated GIFs and I thought that he was making a joke. And so I laughed and he definitely was, I mean, it just, everything was horrible. Right. So, yeah. That's how I got into it. We, okay. <laughs> <laughs> we need to do the play by play of that, like three minute little clip of you sitting, standing next to the stage, <laughs> hearing them read a different person's bio. Like what was going on in your mind and in your body at that moment? Did you want to run? Like what was happening? <laughs> well, it was, you know, it was, it was hilarious for me. So I get beat red um, when attention is focused on me, whether it's just like, you know, I remember even in middle school, a teacher calling on me when I had my hand raised, I was fully prepared to speak and yet my face would turn tomato red. Yeah, me and I too. Had this, like, yeah, right. It's so common. <laughs> I had this vivid feeling of like, oh, I'm going to be tomato red as soon as I go on stage. And it's not out of nerves for getting on stage. It's because everything has gone awry. <laughs> so, yeah, I was standing there thinking to myself, OK, so they definitely thought thought I was someone else. They thought that they were inviting someone. And the reason why I knew this is because the intro was like, we most recently saw her speak at this other place, this other conference. And so we knew we wanted to get her in here. And given that this was my first talk, I knew that they absolutely had not seen me yeah. speak <laughs> So I was like, all right, I'm just going to get up here and do this and like pretend that this is fine. Like it's, have you ever seen that cartoon of that dog? It's a, it's a cartoon of a dog sitting in a house that's on fire and the little speech bubble says, this is fine. <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> I was that dog. <laughs> So you never said anything when you got up to the, you weren't like, oh, by the way. No, I rolled with it. I was like, cool. Whoever that person is sounds really, really important and impressive. Let me just own this. That's awesome. So that's a great classic example of having to improvise when you're speaking, because it seems like that happens more often than actually doing what was planned. Especially when you're speaking at conferences and they say, yeah, you're going to go on for an hour and you're going to go on at this time. And then you get there and like the whole day's thrown off and you're doing 15 minutes and you're doing a panel all of a sudden, you know, has that happened to you much? Oh, so much. There was, <laughs> there was one week that I was doing, uh, I had planned on doing, I think it was two talks, two and a half talks um, in the same week, three at the same conference and one at a much bigger deal conference called Google IO. So it was kind of like a bucket list on top of the, the rest of these talks I was giving all kind of in California. <laughs> and I, on the day that I arrived, they said to me, hey, actually, another speaker pulled out for a different, uh, a different talk time. Could you add on a fourth talk? And I thought to myself, yeah, OK. Like, why? All right. I, this can't. <laughs> This can't go that bad, you know? Yeah. And thankfully, the talk that they pulled together was a panel. So it was, I mean, thank goodness it wasn't just me trying to wing it with some information. And also, thank goodness, it was a panel with a bunch of other people who, like, I knew well enough that I was able to, to um, there was no moderator. So whenever somebody asked a question, I was able to, like, re refer it to other people on the panel, which made them look good. I mean, me look good for kind of, like, helping out. It was, like, a good improvising uh yeah, like journey. Mm -hmm. <laughs> They're getting more comfortable, just, you know, just trying stuff out. 
Yeah, and being able to think on your feet and just go, okay, what can we piece together like right now? Because we don't have a choice. Yeah, right. There's like, yeah, I mean, the choice is like, yeah, we all just kind of pitch in and wing it together, or you know, we go without a talk, and which I probably would have been fine. But for me, more than anything else, I think getting that that I wouldn't call it improvising. I'm not a good improviser, but uh, for me, like just trying to roll through something and trying to. I don't know, see how it goes it helps me feel so much more prepared the next time something goes awry. It's just like the act of like getting through it, even if it's messy, has helped me feel so much more confident the next time I get up on stage. Do you feel that's a, a trait that's consistent in, throughout your career and in your life that you're always like, OK, I don't know how this is going to go, but I'm just going to try it anyway. And we'll just yeah, let's roll with it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's funny. Like, um, so I'm a, I'm a manager of uh, I, now I manage managers who manage engineers. And before I was just managing engineers. And I think that, you know, humans are so weird. You know, when you sit down with someone in, in a one on one, um, they might throw you anything. It could be anything from like hey, I'm getting a divorce to, hey, I feel like my career is stalling or, hey, I've got to give you some really harsh feedback. And, you know, sitting down in a room one-on-one is very different than getting up on stage and talking to people, but it is in some ways way more intense because you have to, you have to really be a good person. <laughs> you know, you're like, you, you have to, um, you know, it's, it's because it's not about you anymore, right? It's about the other, it's the other people in the room. So yeah, I think that overall through my career, it's been really helpful to feel like no matter what happens or gets thrown my way, either I can say, I don't know, or, um, or try to work it out together in the room. And this happens on stage too, you know, I'll get a strange, you know, the, the person asking me the question about animated gifts. Once I started laughing and then realized he wasn't joking, I said, you know, I actually don't know the answer to that question. Does anybody else in the audience know it? <laughs> you know, it's just, it's that stuff that helps you, yeah, navigate the rest of, you know, humans being weird. Yeah. And it's a, there's a bit of lightness to it too. Just like letting the moment happen and not trying to be perfect or control it too much, but just kind of like opening it up and like you said, redirecting it. Hey, you know what? I don't actually know what I'm, how, how to help you. So let's see if someone else can help you and just yeah. being okay with that. Yeah. Yeah. I think that like the transparency and the vulnerability, I used to think that being a good leader meant that you were strong and grounded and secure and you, you like had your stuff together. And I don't know, over the last couple of years, and this again, is not just about public speaking, but just as a leader in general, I think it's, I've realized how, how valuable it is to be an actual human, not uh, someone who's great all the time. I think that people trust you more. I think that people are more open to be themselves too. And yeah, it just creates better human relationships. And on stage, if I fumble, I mean, you know this, right? Like it's way easier to acknowledge it and try to move on because the audience wants you to do great. They don't want you to mess up and being real about it. I think it wins your points. Absolutely. I think it opens up empathy and compassion and just like a connection that, oh, this person's a real person and they're letting me see that. And that's, that's real and honest. Yeah. And not yeah. like they're trying to be somebody else. I don't, yeah, I don't know about you, but like if I watch a speaker on stage who just feels uh, like they know everything, <laughs> I don't, I'm not super eager to learn from them. And I'm not sure what that is. I think I'd much rather learn from someone who's just trying to share something that they're passionate about or they think is important for me to know, or, you know, something, something along those lines. I think that it's way, I don't know, I'm way more open to receiving information if it's from someone who feels like a real human. Do you notice consistencies in the people you really like on stage versus the people who maybe feel like they're not giving you their true self? That's a really good question. So I, I've, I started to pick up on um, 
something in the feedback that I was receiving initially when I was a public speaker, uh, as I was trying to find my voice on stage, I think I wanted to look really articulate and really poised and really like I like I had it all together. Um, and people afterwards would comment, people who knew me especially well, would say that they prefer my conversational voice to my speaking voice. And at first I was like, hmm, either that feels gendered or that, you know, there's something weird about that. But I started to realize that there can be a blend. I can be a more articulate, poised, put together version of myself on stage because I, I'm trying to do a really good job. And I, you know, I really want to make an, an impact on folks. And I can also be real at the same time. It doesn't have to be like a stilted, robotic, professional, super professional version of myself. So I think I've learned a lot from speakers who have a more conversational tone while still really delivering some solid information. Or, you know, speakers who are more comedians, they may not be delivering tons of information through their comedy, but, you know, it feels so relatable and you and you want to learn more from them. It's like It's like that spectrum of different styles that feel, I hesitate to use the word authentic because I think that, you know, it's no one's really their authentic self when they're on stage necessarily, nor should you try to be, but definitely you want to, you want to do a good job and you want to feel relatable. Yeah. I know one of the things you say in your book is you do you like, don't feel obligated to sound like other speakers you've seen. Do you have any tips on how people can figure out how to be more like themselves on stage? (laughs) Yeah, that's a, yeah, it's, it's super, it's it's meaty, right? Because all humans are so different. Like coming back to what we said earlier, humans are weird. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean like good weird. <laughs> and I think that, you know, we all, we have this vision of what we want to look like or what we want to sound like on stage. And I think it's good to shoot for those things. But one of the things I like to talk about in the book is my coworker, Bill, who reads from his notes, which as we all know, is like a cardinal sin of public speaking. You're not supposed to read, um, but he does it flawlessly. I think because before he gets up and speaks, he acknowledges, um, hey, I'm going to read from my notes because it's really important for me to get these words right. And I want to do a good job. So for me, doing a good job is reading from my notes. I hope you don't mind. And then he goes on to deliver just a, the most phenomenal talk. Hmm. I, this was huge for me in realizing like, okay, I can break whatever the quote unquote rules are because um, as long as it doesn't distract the audience and as long as it equips me to deliver the information better, uh, I can do that because it probably will end up being a, I'll, I'll be giving a better talk because I'll be more comfortable or more grounded or more secure or, you know, deliver my words better. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think that, yeah, I think over time it's helped me understand that everybody's going to try to tackle their fears differently because we, you know, we all have super different fears about this stuff. Um, and that manifests in like us all looking like different, totally different speakers. Yeah. And you actually did a survey when you were writing your book to learn more about the fears people have on stage. And I know you got a, a spectrum of answers. Can you share some of what you learned about people's fear? Yeah. So, okay. Before I get started, what, what would you say is your number one fear about public speaking? Hmm. Probably that I'm going to forget what I'm going to say. Totally. I'm going to get up there and just totally go blank and just be like, so what did you guys (laughs) have for breakfast? (laughs) Yeah, right. Or just like that that awful tongue-tied feeling where you can't open your mouth and say any words at all. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, So for my number one fear is is tripping and falling when I get on stage. (laughs) Like I have this like image in my mind of just totally falling on my face, like tripping on on the carpet or, you know, whatever, falling on my face. Um, And I kind of assumed that this was everybody's big fear about public speaking before I did the survey. And then I started to realize, oh, wow, there is a spectrum, like you said, there's a spectrum of fears that we all have. Um, 
it related to, you know, some were voice and appearance. So uh, for me, it's tripping and falling. People feared having their fly down. People feared um, people judging, you know, the audience judging them based on what they were wearing versus uh, what they actually had to say. People talked about um, fearing being judged for being fat, a lot of that stuff. Are their voice croaking? For me, probably the, the blushing is definitely a part of it. Um, people feared being judged. So, uh, feeling like people thought that they didn't have anything worthwhile to say, or that they had something wrong that they were saying, or that they would get up in the middle of their talk and realize they had been saying the most incorrect information for the last half an hour. <laughs> and the audience was starkly aware of it. You know, it's like this spectrum, um, of fears that we all have about this stuff, or, you know, being harassed, uh, getting an aggressive audience member, those kinds of things. So, yeah, I mean, there's so many different ways that we all need to tackle this. And with the book, I was trying to highlight, as long as you can start to narrow down what what your major fears are, let's see if we can either reduce those fears or help you feel more in control or more comfortable or confident when you get on stage to brace yourself for those fears. Hmm. I like that idea of, of facing whatever it is first, like maybe writing it down and just seeing it in front of you and then being able to ask yourself, like, is this true? Like, is this actually going to happen based on the past? And I guess what I'm thinking of is I've never ever not known what to say on stage. And I've given five, six, seven hundred presentations. And I'm still <laughs> afraid of that today. And yeah. it's such a funny, irrational fear. because like, There's no proof of that ever happening. <laughs> right, right, right. Brains are the worst. Yeah, I, I feel like I feel like um, when it comes to public speaking in general, I mean, you know, we all have this. We all know that public speaking is our number one fear. But when it comes to public speaking for each of us, it's so different. And yeah, there's this great quote from Eric Meyer, um, who gives a lot of talks in tech, and he says that his fear, his nerves don't ever change, um, nor does he think they should change. We all still get nervous when we get on stage, no matter how experienced you are. Hmm. It's true. I know. I still feel nervous every single time. And it yeah. Goes away. <laughs> yeah. I think that for me, um, like those nerves have changed over time from like nausea to like adrenaline high butterflies but the nerves are still there yeah absolutely and my face gets red every single talk I'm <laughs> totally. always hot like I have to wear tank tops or sleeveless dresses for every talk because I'm so hot and my mouth still gets so dry I have to have water absolutely <laughs> I so I, I grew up in New Jersey and I'm uh so in New Jersey, a lot of people talk very fast. And so one of the things that happens for me when I either get too comfortable or too nervous is that I speed up. And so like for forever and ever, I could give the most articulate talk one day and the next day stumble over my words because I'm speaking far too fast. It's just, it's amazing to me how that stuff really, it doesn't go away. <laughs> mm -hmm. One of the things you mentioned as a fear was uh, not wearing the right thing on stage or feeling like people are judging your clothing. And I know you say people should feel like a superhero on stage. So what do you recommend people wear and what do you wear? Oh yeah. I love, I love talking about this. Um, I don't want to freak people out by how much thought I put into like I don't want everybody to start obsessing over what they wear now, <laughs> which is my biggest fear. But I think if, if you if you have fears about um, how you're going to feel under those lights or if you've got fears about like me tripping and falling or um, like something going right, like having a wardrobe malfunction, I think spending some time thinking about your outfit is is crucial. Um, so for me, what I wear on stage is usually a sleeveless you know, tank top or dress just like you because uh, my flop sweat won't show as much. <laughs> Um, if I don't have sleeves on, uh, I think for me, a, a lot as a, as a woman speaker, um, I would love to wear dresses more often, but it gets really tricky with battery packs. So yeah. I spend a lot of time thinking about 
um, the right belt or the right bra that you can attach the battery pack to in the back or, mm -hmm. you know, pockets, et cetera. So I, I, uh, I try to incorporate something like that. Usually I've been wearing pants recently. Um, I wear wedges. I, um, there's been a lot of great advice about feeling grounded on stage and wearing heels can sometimes make you feel less grounded depending upon how, how well practiced you are in that. For me, I am not well practiced. So I'll want to feel a little bit taller. Uh, so I'll wear wedges. And then, yeah, I'll, I'll try to, um, try to wear a microphone that works with my long hair and my glasses because <laughs> it's, you know, oh man, the different kinds of microphones out there that can get in the way, uh, especially what I, I don't know what they're actually called, but I've been referring to them as Britney Spears mics. Yeah, um, mics, the kind of, yeah. Yeah, yep, thank you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like that, you know, can be really tricky. So I think a lot about, um, yeah, how my hair and my glasses are to not rustle uh, jewelry, et cetera. Like I don't usually wear jewelry on stage, so it doesn't, I don't risk rustling the microphone. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, other things to think about are like layers. Uh, I know that other people uh, would feel more comfortable wearing a jacket, even though it makes you warmer. Uh, at least it also hides your sweat. Um and then, you know, I, I I don't know about you, but I always bring along fashion tape just to like close that extra button or uh, make sure I don't have to worry about something going awry while I'm on stage. Uh, awesome. <laughs> I, I stopped using lapel mics with mm. the battery pack because I, I can't, I just feel weird wearing pants on stage. I, I think it's just a personal thing. I like wearing dresses. And so I always use a handheld mic and I'm like that person from the 80s who's like, yeah, I'm using this. <laughs> I am so with you. I am so with you. I, so I was actually at a conference recently hanging out with a bunch of other speakers and there had been a couple of microphone malfunctions that day, just, you know, when the, when the stars align. Um, and I was mentioning, I was like, oh yeah, I wish I could just hold a handheld mic. And all, there were probably eight or nine other speakers there and they were like, what, why would you want to hold a handheld mic? And I was like, is that weird? <laughs> so thank you for reassuring me that that's not super weird. I'm really comfortable holding one. Me too. And I also like it because one hand is stationary. Like I don't yeah. have to worry about what that hand is doing because it's busy. Yeah, and I exactly. just kind of <laughs> keep the other hand under control a little bit more. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I was talking to so these speakers where um, it was a technical conference that some of them show code samples or they edit code while on stage, which by the way, that is brave to edit code live in front of a group of people is that's a bananas thing to do. I'm really impressed by them. Um, and they were saying uh, two of them were saying that uh, at separate conferences, people had held had handed them a handheld mic to use, but that they had to like balance it while also trying to live code. So they oh either had to like get assistance from the event organizers to hold their handheld mic up to their lips or like find another another way to like arrange things so it didn't all go totally awry. Yeah, I would say that's one of those times when you just go with the lavalier mic if you can, you know? Yeah, totally, <laughs> totally. When I was at TEDx um, in Washington, D.C., I decided right before I got on stage that I wanted to do a cartwheel at the beginning of my talk. <laughs> and and the control, like the um, director, the person who was kind of running all the AV that day came over to me and said, hey, um, someone said you're going to do a cartwheel. What, what are we going to do with the mic? And I said, well, just put a handheld mic up on stage and I'll grab it when I'm done. And he said, well, all the speakers are using lapel mics. We kind of wanted to keep it uniform. And I was like, look, I need to do this cartwheel. So can you help me? <laughs> <laughs> and all the guys in the control room are cracking up. They're like, are you seriously doing this? I'm like, yeah, I am. So I guess... <laughs> I got up on stage and I did the cartwheel and then I got to use the handheld mic for the rest of the talk. I have never been more impressed. <laughs> you should watch it. It's on. Uh... I, I cannot wait. <laughs> yeah, just Google Angela Lucier TEDx Pen Quarter. You'll see the cartwheel. <laughs> so wait, it's not it's not Angela Lucier uh, cartwheel because I would definitely that's exactly what I, was I know. I know. <laughs> we need to work on that. <laughs> um, 
One of the other thing, interesting things that you talk about is the importance of having a large spectrum of voices on stage, not just the typical you know, experts and people who've been doing it for a hundred years, but newer voices, people who have new ideas and strategies and solutions. And I couldn't agree with you more because I think having that diversity is so important. So how would you recommend someone who's not like the typical speaker get started? Yeah, I think about this all the time. Um, I think that like, if we have more diverse voices on stage, that means we get to see more cartwheels, right? Or like other cartwheel-like things, <laughs> exactly. um, which is helpful to, to showing people that you can be yourself and be on stage and, and yeah, be super brave and still nail it. Um, yeah, so I, I, I think about this a lot. When I'm talking to uh, underrepresented groups in tech in particular, and obviously this, is, this isn't just women um, or white women, this is also you know people of color and other under, underrepresented groups, um, there's a lot of blockers to getting to that stage, whether it is internal, you know, we talk a lot about imposter syndrome or whether it's external, there's a lot of risk in getting up on stage. I don't know if you've ever been harassed, but, um, I know a lot of women have, uh, have experienced either harassment from an audience member or, um, harassment online, or they've seen their friends be affected by this stuff. So I think that there's a lot in the way of getting a, a more diverse representation of voices on stage. So I think that um, I'm hoping that what we can do as an industry is start to combat this a little bit more broadly, either uh, by using things like codes of conduct um, and making sure that events are able to enforce codes of conduct, um, which makes it a little bit safer for people to get on stage if they're enforced. But also, if uh, if I'm looking at, you know, internally, at what's blocking me from getting on stage, I think a lot of us worry that we don't have something valuable to say or something valuable to share or that we need to be an expert in something before we finally make it to the stage. And that is patently false. Uh, I think that we've all seen that um, that speaker that looks like all the other speakers who gets up and clearly they think they know a lot, <laughs> yeah. but you, you might know more than they do and, and you're sitting in the audience. So I would encourage everybody to to think a lot about what it is that they have to share with the world. They Don't limit yourself in uh, and needing to be an expert first or needing to have all the answers first. Again, like we talked about earlier, it's a lot better to be vulnerable and open and say that you don't know while you're on stage because at least you're on stage still sharing a new point of view with folks. Um, I think that, yeah, like like you said, like it's so important for us to not have a homogenous group of people because diversity of voices and diversity of thought is going to help us move forward together as an industry. Yeah, I totally agree. And I've been a business owner for seven years, and I think I've made close to 100,000 mistakes. So one mm. of the things I do on stage is I share my failures over and over again. I'll share story after story of failures and places where I just ran into a wall and didn't know what to do next. And I find that those stories connect more with my audience than I did this great thing and look at me and I'm amazing and here's why you <laughs> should listen to everything I say. So especially people who don't feel like experts, but have had a lot of experiences or have like learned from challenges or failures can bring those stories to the stage and those can become relatable and inspiring. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if I'm trying to learn something new, I'm going to make a lot of mistakes along the way. Don't I want to hear from someone who's also made those mistakes to learn how they solve them? <laughs> yeah, I think it makes yeah. a lot of sense. And totally. It's just, it's less threatening all around to just yeah. say like, I did this thing, I got up and I tried again and I dusted myself off. And I, I don't know, I think there's something admirable about talking about that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that um, for us to like move together as an industry or learn more and grow as an industry, we're going to have to be talking about not just successes. You're absolutely right. 
Yeah. One of the things that speakers deal with all the time is getting feedback from the audience. Like you mentioned, mm -hmm. sometimes it comes in the form of harassment. Other times it comes in the form of constructive feedback. So how can speakers use feedback to become better on stage? Yeah, I love talking about feedback because it's not just about uh, conference talks, right? Like we humans are really bad at giving feedback and we're also really bad at receiving feedback. Like, I don't know about you, but in my work, it's I have to give a lot of like performance reviews and also receive performance reviews. And it's always the most painful experience. And so for me, feedback when it comes to conference talks has a lot to do with readying yourself to receive it, readying your, your brain to receive feedback, uh, knowing how to distill feedback to the feedback that matters and the feedback that's going to help you grow and prepping people to give you feedback in, in the best way. So I really, I really encourage folks who are getting into public speaking to do run throughs in front of some folks who I like to call your feedback crew. And this feedback crew could be um, people who you know, people who you know maybe give good feedback or, you know, maybe better feedback givers than average, or people who have a shared context to you. They know the audience you're going to be talking to, or they know the topic that you're going to be talking about. And these are folks you can say, hey, I'm going to do a run through. Can you give me feedback on um, my presentation style or my narrative structure or what I do with my hands, <laughs> you know, something else. Um, and by by equipping them to know the kinds of feedback that you're looking for, you can make sure that they're going to give you feedback that's helpful, feedback that's actionable, and make sure that you're ready to receive it um, when they want to say something to you. I mean, all this stuff is like, yeah, like I said, it's not just about conference talks. It's about normal, you know, I don't know about you, but when, when my partner's like, hey, there's this thing that you do that really bugs me. That's still just as hard to hear as a conference <laughs> member giving you feedback on your talk. True. So how do you assemble a feedback group or crew to make sure you're getting good feedback and, you know, you're you have the right people in front of you? Yeah. So I think that starting out with like three to five people is good, although one on one is also great. Um, picking people who uh, who you know in some form um, for me that ends up being coworkers or some some friends of mine who are also public speakers or just normal friends who I know are good at giving me constructive criticism um, picking from someone picking from a group who uh, you know has your you can trust has your best interests in mind I would say that with that feedback crew you can explain to them that good feedback is actionable or um, specific you know giving feedback that's like great job is not helpful. It's, I mean, it makes you feel good, but it's not actually helpful yeah. or like bad job, equally unhelpful. Um, <laughs> someone who's able to give you information like, Hey, uh, this part of the talk was boring. I think it'd be more helpful if you added a different visual or told a different story. Like that's super concrete feedback. It still might be hard to hear, but at least you can do something with it. Um, so yeah, folks who you think can, can give that to you are, are crucial. Do you think there's any value in having people in the room who already know what you're talking about? and people who don't know what you're talking about? Oh, absolutely. So um, my, <laughs> I recently have been developing a talk on public speaking, which, I mean, I would love to hear your advice on because it is super meta and weird to be giving a talk about talking. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I've collected uh, people to give me feedback on it who, uh, who run conferences or meetups, so I'm able to like get their perspective on what's valuable to their audiences. I've also been able to get feedback from people who do public speaking and people who don't do it and want to get into it. So that spectrum of people gives me like a wider array of feedback that I can make, I can, I can use to help make my presentation a lot better. So I guess what you're saying is it's the responsibility of the speaker to make sure that they're educating their audience, you know, if it's the feedback crew on how to give feedback first and also what it is you're looking for that would be most helpful rather than just letting it be random. 
Absolutely. Yeah, in the book, I give a whole list of um, example questions or example things you can ask your feedback crew to think about. And this can range from, range from uh, <laughs> is what I'm saying wrong or technically accurate <laughs> um, through uh, am I talking too fast? Is my face distractingly red, et cetera. So I think that <laughs> equipping them before you start with the kinds of information you'd like them to think about can be super valuable afterwards. One of the things you talk about in the book is the micro yes. How does that tie into the feedback Session. Yeah, that's a, oh, I love talking about this. So um, the micro yes is a term coined by a company called Life Labs, who's a consulting company. Um, and there's this thing that happens if you if you want to give someone feedback, uh, and you're not sure really how to approach it, or if they're going to be open to it. Uh, what the micro yes is, is you you can sit down with them and say, hey, I've got some feedback to give you is now an okay time to share it. And they will probably say yes. And that act of saying yes, it's amazing. It, triggers this physiological response in them that makes them a lot more receptive and ready and open to hearing what the feedback that you have to say. Just getting that yes, getting that confirmation, that buy-in helps them be ready to process the information you're about to share. Nothing is worse than being just punched in the face with random feedback you weren't expecting, but <laughs> that micro yes allows you to start to be able to you know, receive it better. I think that sounds like a good title for a blog post, like don't get punched <laughs> in the face by random feedback. There's <laughs> yes. seven tips to avoid it. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Because you're right, it does feel like a punch in the face when it's coming from all different angles and it doesn't really add up to anything really helpful, especially if you're looking for something totally different. <laughs> absolutely, yeah. So I was, I gave this talk, um, this practice uh, talk through uh, with a bunch of people who had never done public speaking or done very little of it and they wanted to learn the content. I'd ask them specifically to give me feedback on um, what points were dry or what points maybe I should cut from the presentation. And they all walked away saying, actually, we loved all of it. And I realized I needed to talk to someone who wasn't interested in learning this stuff, who could give me more concrete feedback on my narrative structure. And so I was able to go and find someone else who could give me that kinds of feedback. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Um, just a random question that popped up as we were talking. Do you deal with the imposter syndrome as you're giving presentations today? And does that come up more when you're talking about public speaking or does it come up more when you're on the technical side or is it, or does it not happen or? Yeah, I, I definitely deal with the imposter syndrome when it comes to talking about public speaking. I mean, this podcast is full of imposter syndrome for me, um, mostly because, you know, talking about talking <laughs> is brand new to me and there's so much that I don't know. And I, a lot of the fear comes out of, you know, I wrote this book from based on my own experience and based on the experience of people who I know or who I've read, and there's no possible way for it to encompass all of the great knowledge that's out there. And I have a lot of fears about standing up saying like, hey, you should listen to me talk about this thing when there's no way I'm an expert in it. So I think that for me these days that, that pops up all the time. Mm -hmm. Over time, um, I was giving a lot of talks about how to make websites fast. Uh, initially, like during that first keynote that went awful, um, I had a lot of imposter syndrome. I couldn't believe anybody would want to hear me talk about this thing because I wasn't an expert in it. And in many ways, I was regurgitating information that other people had already written about or talked about, you know, common technical knowledge. Over time, I started to realize that um, my point of view on it was a little bit different. It was the same information, but I was able to translate it to non-developers, non mostly to like designers or, or project managers. And that was the gift that I was bringing, right? That was my, my new spin or, or the thing that was maybe helpful to people. And finding that, that grounding or that angle in it helped me feel like less of an imposter. And I'm hoping that eventually I find that about public speaking too. Yeah, one of the best pieces of advice I ever received was from my mentor along this, the lines of imposter syndrome. She said, be the thought leader of your own experience. 
And mm-hmm. and your book is a great example of that because you're doing just that. Your your whole public speaking book is about your public speaking journey, what you found to work, why you should do it, what doesn't work, and that's all you can do. You know, anything yeah. beyond that is would probably be imposter syndrome territory. But <laughs> you're actually just talking about stuff you've learned because you did it. Yeah. So yeah, I think... it's hard though, right? It still it still feels real icky. <laughs> <laughs> it does, and no one knows that story better than you. So if someone else tried to to write the same book as you, they'd be the imposter syndrome or they'd be the imposter, you know, yeah. you're, you're the actual, the authentic original. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I, I've often wrestled with this term imposter syndrome because, um, I think that, you know, it's so real for me in many ways. And also sometimes people, um, I've seen people try to tell me I have imposter syndrome when I plain old don't know something. <laughs> and I would love for there to be a difference, uh, in between actively not knowing something and knowing you don't know it and feeling imposter syndrome. I, I hope that in the future we can all talk more about like how it's okay to just say you don't know something. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to make a point to just say, I don't know more often. Maybe that could be like a <laughs> I, challenge. Like just try to totally. say, I don't know five times a day. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> and not feel icky about it. Just be like, yep, no, I've got no idea. <laughs> and then just go eat a donut and move on. Yeah, oh, always. <laughs> all right. We're going to move into the lightning round unless there's any last minute things you really want to share. No, let's do it. You're ready. Okay, cool. So we're going to do five quick questions. The first is, what's the number one piece of advice you have for women who want to be well-known speakers? Yeah, okay. So this is something that's worked for me. Obviously, it might not work for everybody. But the thing that helped me the most, the advice that I got that really resonated for me had to do with doing a lot of writing on my topic before giving a talk on it. So for me, writing, whether it was in an email to someone or writing a blog post or something else, um, maybe just posting on Twitter, allowed me to get feedback in the form of questions being asked or uh, conversations being had that allowed me to kind of iterate on that problem statement or iterate on, um, yeah, on like how I was even approaching the topic. And so for me, getting into public speaking, um, it had a lot to do with like being, you know, using my writing to leverage that stuff. And I would love for, for more people, especially women, to be doing more writing and publishing it, you know, publicly. Yeah, great advice. Number two, do you have a personal operating philosophy? And if so, what is it? Oh, I love this question. So I can talk about my management philosophy, um, which is uh, I I believe that everybody has the answers already inside themselves. And so for me as a coach or a manager or whatever, um, it has a lot to do with helping them see what they what they already know to be true, whether it's through asking open questions or, um, you know, giving the space to talk it out or whatever it is, uh, helping them find the answers that are already exist inside themselves. I love it. And number three, what advice would you give to your 25 year old self? <laughs> uh, allocate some more time for like, chilling out. You don't have to go hard all the time. <laughs> yeah. Number four, what advice do you have for your 75-year-old self? Oh, yeah. Um, uh, please keep traveling. Like, don't stop traveling. Like, go, There's a whole big world. Please continue to, to go check it out. Mm-hmm. And number five, if you had to pick one object to represent yourself, what would you pick? <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, am I allowed to pick the book? <laughs> sure. I feel like I feel like birthing a book is like it's you know it's like this is this part of me that I've been able to like put out into the world, which is terrifying. And so probably for me right now, the thing that that feels most like me is probably this chunk of me that's been published. Awesome. And what does it mean to you to claim the stage? I think that for me, um, it has to do with that moment that you feel like you are grounded and strong and. It's that moment where you're like, yeah, I'm doing this. Even if it's fleeting and you trip and fall the next moment. It's that <laughs> moment right before then where you're like, 
whoa, yeah, I'm up here. Cool. Yes. Good job. <laughs> I meant to ask you earlier, is another reason you wear wedges instead of heels because you're afraid of falling? Oh, yeah, absolutely. 100%. <laughs> <laughs> Anything you'd like to share with our audience, like where to get your book? <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> so uh, it's on a book apart's website. If you just Google demystifying public speaking, you can absolutely go and find it. It'll be available for purchase on October 25th. Yay. And how can we find more information about you? Please follow me on Twitter, uh, Lara underscore Hogan, uh, or on my website, larahogan.me. Excellent. Well, you have earned your donut. And <laughs> <laughs> thanks so much for being on the show today, Lara. This was a lot of fun. Thank you so much, Angela. And there you have it. Today's interview with Lara Hogan, the amazing Lara Hogan. That was the right person I meant to interview, by the way. How crazy was that story of her first speaking gig? I was just standing here listening to it going, what? <laughs> I don't even know what I would have done if I were her waiting to go on stage, hearing someone else's bio. That is mortifying, but she's a total pro and she handled it amazingly. This this uh, fall, we have some amazing interviews with more great people, so I hope you will keep listening. In the meantime, you should jump over to my website and sign up for my newsletter because I have a lot of cool stuff coming up in the next couple of months I want to share with you regarding my speaking clubs, regarding this podcast, offers, just you know, interesting public speaking tips and advice that might be helpful to you as you continue your public speaking journey. And you can find me at AngelaLucier.us. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please do leave a review and rate it because it does help more people find it. All right, friends, that's it for now. Until next time, stop waiting, start creating. See you later. <laughs>